Good, good. <laughs> if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up to Second Samuel. And we'll continue our journey through the life of David. <clears throat> we just finished up his, his fall. We see David, the man after God's own heart, going so far. Literally, the Lord lays out that he would have even taken him further. And then one day when the, the kings would all go out to war in the springtime, David stayed home. He wanted a day off. And in his day off, he fell. We see him fall through, uh, through lust of the eyes. We see him fall in the pride of life. We see him fall the same old weapons that the enemy has always been using. In his fall and his cover-up, he laid out an example that the Lord, through the prophet Nathan, gives David hints his family is going to follow in the same way. David said that the man who took that ewe lamb, remember in the story that Nathan spoke to him, he's going to pay back fourfold, and we're going to see four of David's sons die, just like he had killed Uriah. And the sword is never going to leave his family the rest of his life. In fact, the rest of the book of 2 Samuel is David struggling with the consequences of that sin. It's not that God brings so stiff a judgment that it lasts David the rest of his life. It is the fallout of his choice. And if we can be reminded of anything, I hope it would be that that simple choice to do that thing, whatever it is, always costs you more than you want to pay. David will be paying all the way till he dies. One consequence after another after another. And as much as he, he's going to try to backpedal and save what he can of his family, he's going to lose in the next two chapters three of them. You could argue four or five. Lives are going to be changed. Forever altered the course of their their life that they're going to live. But the whole storm that David's going through starts with that simple choice that said, I- I'm tired. I'm tired of going to battle. I'm tired of fighting against the flesh. I'm tired of the, the struggles that come into my life. I want some time off. And it led him to that fall. Well, as we look in the scriptures, as we begin... Uh, In chapter 13 is where we'll be picking it up. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister. Her name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. You have uh, Absalom and Tamar. They're full sisters. Their mother's name is Maacah. Maacah is a woman that David married after he came to Jerusalem in a peace treaty. In order to make peace, kings in the ancient times would marry a variety of wives in order to make peace. God never told David to do it. David just did it. It was obviously something that David struggled with his whole life. The father of Maacah was Talmai of Jeshur. He is the king of Jeshur. And that's going to play into the story of Absalom. Here's one thing you will know for certainty. Ma'akah must have been beautiful. Because every child that comes from that line is going to be marked with that same phrase throughout the scriptures. Tamar was lovely. Absalom was so beautiful. People couldn't imagine how beautiful Absalom was as a man. You don't see that very often laid out for us in the scripture. Absalom's going to have a daughter. He's going to name his daughter Tamar. And the scripture's going to say how beautiful she was. So we see in this family and through Ma'akah, there was this mark of, of beauty, outward beauty at least. Outward beauty at least. 
But we see the beginning of the fallout of David's choice as the scripture lays out for us that Amnon, the son of David, loved her. He wanted her. Well, Amnon was his firstborn. Amnon's the crown prince. Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the fool. Remember Nabal, the crazy guy? Abigail married David and she had a son. And Saul, uh, Samuel tells his name was Chilia, but First Chronicles tells us his name was Daniel. You know, he went by one or the other. It doesn't make any difference. The, the point is, somewhere in the story, he dies. He's gone. That was the second son. First son, Amnon. Second son, Chiliab slash Daniel. Third son, Absalom. Amnon is the crown prince. He's the guy. In fact, if the king can't go somewhere, they send Amnon. Because he's the next king. There's no question. I mean, he's, he's the firstborn son of David. Surely he'll be the king. Surely he'll be the one that takes over. And he, the crown prince is in love with his half-sister, Tamar. Now here's what we know about this love. In chapter 13, verse 1, it's not love. That's what we know about it. It's a desire. He wants her. You can term it as, as lust. Whatever it is, it's destructive. It's hateful. It doesn't care about Tamar. It is a desire in him. And he sees his sister as an object, as a thing. And, and a lot of times the struggles that a lot of, a lot of men have with women is that same thing. Is, is learning to see a woman as a child of God instead of as an object. Something to be owned, or something to be conquered, something to be had. Being able to change that mindset and how we look at one another. Amnon hadn't had that instruction. In fact, the latest example he had from his father was, if you see someone you want, take her. Do whatever it takes. If you got to kill her husband, kill her husband. None of these things were done in a corner. People in the palace knew what was going on. So Amnon, the scripture lays out for us, loved his sister. It's interesting. The, the name Amnon means faithful. <laughs> Tamar, is her name means a palm. It's like the, uh, the name of a queen palm, the queen palms in the area. This beautiful tree. Uh, that's what Tamar means. Absalom means my father. My father is peace. And none of them live up to their names. Except for maybe Tamar. None of them will live up to their name. Scripture says, Ammon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin, and it was improper for Ammon to do anything to her. In those days, the, the children of the king were sequestered. So the boys, let's picture it like this. The boys lived in the left wing of the palace and the girls in the right wing, and you couldn't go back and forth. The girls all stayed separate, apart, protecting uh, his daughters. And they, they would live their whole life in that area of the palace. And unless for something weird happened, they, wouldn't, they didn't go back and forth. They didn't go from one side to the other. And so Amnon says, man, she's over there on that side. I'm over here on this side and I can't have her. I can't have her, but I have this desire within me. I have this desire, that this unnatural desire... Uh, to be with her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea. His father's name was also Shammah. Uh, he comes up later on in scripture. He's the brother of David. Uh, David's brother. Now Jonadab was a crafty man. So the story begins with an unnatural desire. An unnatural desire in Amnon. And immediately I'm reminded of the scripture of Cain and Abel. Everybody remember the story of Cain and Abel? It's about as old as the stories come, right? And the scripture lays out for us that each of them brought a sacrifice to the Lord. And Abel's sacrifice was accepted, but Cain's sacrifice was rejected. 
And in that moment, God says something to Cain. God says to Cain, Cain, why are you so downcast? Why are you so upset about this? Because God could see in his heart. Already at that moment, Cain has murder in his heart for his brother. And the Lord said to Cain, Cain, sin is at the door of your life. And its desire is to control you. But you should rule over it. God told Cain, just because we have these desires, these these things that are within our life, it does not necessitate that I have to feed them. That I have to practice that. Just because I think in my heart's heart, I want to kill my brother, does not mean I can do it. Any more than just as it means in my heart of hearts that I want that woman or I want that man that I can just do it. Sin is at the door and its desire is to control you but you should rule over it. That means we do have the ability to say no. We do have the ability to say, I'm not going to go that way. I'm not going to feed that lust. I'm not going to feed that desire. More often what happens is we sit around and we have this thought in our mind and we we begin to, to water it and we begin to feed it and it grows and the desire grows and pretty soon that desire is so big there's nothing you're going to do to hold it back. The time to stop it was when it was first coming up. But Amnon does what we do. He went to a friend. Man, I really, I really want my sister Tamar. And his friend is just a low down, good for nothing sneak. So he's got a plan. He's going to give Amnon a plan. He's going to give Amnon a plan. And as far as I'm concerned, he is just as guilty as Amnon in the rape of Tamar. Because he gives him the tools. Why well, didn't do it? Yeah, David didn't drag the sword across Uriah's throat. He used the Ammonites to do it. But God said, you're guilty. You killed Uriah. David gave the order to Joab. And Joab saw the order through. But God didn't say Joab. God said, David. You are guilty. So here's Jonadab giving advice to his friend. Let that be a warning to all of us. Often, one time or another, a friend is going to come to us for advice. Realize the weight behind the words you give. They say advice is worth what you pay for it. A lot of times that's true. But even if you didn't pay nothing for it, if you follow it, just remember you're a part. Your hands are as dirty as theirs for whatever they did. Good or bad. And we want to be reminded of that. Well, Jonadab said to him in verse 4, he says, Why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? So apparently... Amnon's not eating. Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. My brother Absalom's sister. This is a desire that ought to be quelched. It should be squashed. It should be pulled out. But Jonadab says to him, well, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Now that's all Jonadab says. And I'm sure what Jonadab's thinking in his mind is, Well, Tamar's going to come over here and cook some cakes and he'll get to be able to be with her, to talk to her, spend some time with her, because he can't go to that side of the palace. 
But she maybe will be able to come here if he's sick. And her, and her dad, his dad says, yeah, go, go take care of your brother. So that's the plan. That's Jonadab's plan. That's not necessarily what's in the heart of Amnon, but that's Jonadab's plan. So here's what happens. Scripture goes on to tell us, So <clears throat> Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me and my, and my side that I might eat from her hand. And so David sent home to Tamar, saying, Hey, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house. And she's probably thinking it's an honor. The crown prince has asked for me to, to come over and, and help him when he's sick. She's probably excited at it. I mean, there's no, nothing has passed between them that she would think there's any diabolical plan that's been laid out. So she goes to, to make him some, some cakes and to try to just help nurse him, nurse him along. So she goes to Amnon's house and he was lying down. So she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Oh, I can't eat. So Amnon said, have everyone leave. Go out from me. And so they all went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And so Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, uh, her brother, in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said, come lie with me, my sister. Now about the time we think that the Bible does not have everything, or that there's something new out there under the sun that hasn't already been a part, the scripture lays out for us that that's not true. That's not true. We, we think that child molestation hasn't ever existed, but the scripture talks about it more than 2,000 years ago. We, we think this concept of incest, it, well, that's, that's something that wouldn't be in the word, but there it is. Tamar wanted his sister. So after he chases everybody out of the room and he's pretended to be sick, he grabs her. And he says, lie with me. Now look at Tamar's response. Tamar's response, she answered him and said, No, my brother, do not force me. Do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. The Bible had laid out for us in the book of Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, the law in regard to situations like this. And Tamar, understanding the law, she says, No, don't. Don't do this. Don't do this thing. Don't, don't force me. And, and ultimately, that's what we're going to see um, Amnon do. And I, where can I take my shame? She's pleading to her brother that if he does, it's going to ruin her life forever. Wherever she goes, in that culture, wherever she's, she goes, she's used. That, that whatever future she may have had is going to be permanently disrupted. Now, that's not that much different from our own reality, is it? A situ situation like this takes place within a family. It's going to affect the members within the family forever, not just for a moment. And that's what, that's what Tamar tries to explain to her brother who says he loves her. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, the male of the species is willing to say anything to get what he wants. If you ask enough women, there will be women around who can say, oh, I've heard that line before. I love you. I love you. Hey, I love you. Oh, I'll be with you forever. Let's just, you know, just this, just this little thing. No, it's not a little thing. And I can tell you right off the bat that that person doesn't care about you at all. Not at all. Because true love in the Bible, of all people to, to be shown, is shown by the master manipulator himself, Jacob. You remember Jacob? 
Jacob went to his uncle Laban's house and, and he fell in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. Remember the story? And so the father said, listen, if you will work for her for seven years, I'll give her to you. Okay. So he worked. Seven years. Now, it doesn't say he dated her for seven years. It doesn't say they hung out and they lived like married people. It says he worked so that he might have her. And the Bible goes so far as to say that seven years seemed like just a few days. His love for her was so great. That's what love looks like. Love waits. And in the end, Laban pulls a fast one and switches the brides and gives him or gives her Leah. And in those days, they were covered with a veil. You couldn't see the person you were marrying at all. As a result, in a Jewish wedding today, before the wedding is conducted, the, the bride stands there. I've actually had the opportunity to do a Jewish wedding. The bride stands up there totally veiled. And before you go too far, the, the minister says to the husband, you may check your bride. And he lifts the veil and looks to make sure this is the one that it's supposed to be before the ceremony goes any further. All because of what happened to Jacob. But listen, after that, Jacob goes to his father. He's mad. And he says, what have you done to me? And the father says to him, if you'll work seven more years, I'll give you Rachel. So he worked seven more years. Scripture says he fulfilled her Shabuim. He fulfilled her seven. He did what was required so that he could have Rachel. That's love. The, the concept that so many people think of today is foreign on the pages of Scripture. This is not love that Tamar has. This is a twisted desire, twisted by the devil in the heart of, of Amnon to ruin his life, his sister's life, and the consequences that are going to befall from this are going to keep the sword alive in the family of David until his father's death. But he don't think about any of that. All he thinks about is what I want. That's what I want. I'm, it's been many times I've counseled with people and I counsel with people who say, this is just a desire in me. I just have to do it. No, you don't. I got lots of desires in me. I'm thankful that I do not just let them all run rampant. You're thankful I don't let them all just run rampant. As far as I know, the FBI are thankful too. There's a lot of things that, that, <laughs> that I am gifted in that have the, you know, that whole saying, if don't do the crime if you can't do the time. I don't want to do the time. But I know how to do it. Now, I was going to say I was gifted by God, but that gift didn't come from Him. That gift came from somebody else. And occasionally that desire wells up within me. And I just want to, to steal something, rip something off, do something. That's a desire. The Bible says in each and every one of us, there is a weight that slows down our walk with God. And there is a sin that so easily ensnares us. Now my sin may be different from your sin, from somebody else's sin, from their sin, that sin. We all struggle at one. But that sin in you just wants to well up and say, it's at the door and its desire is to control you. But God's word to us is, you should rule over it. And you tell it no. And you don't give it any ground. You don't give it any ground that it can run. You don't give it any ground that it can grow. The Bible says to flee youthful lusts. Turn our back like Joseph and run away. Whatever that is, don't allow it to grow. But here Tamar's laid hold of his sister. He's grabbed her. He's feeding her the line. Oh, I, I love you. I have to have you. She's saying, please don't do this. Please don't do this. 
He goes, she goes on to say, And as for you, you will be like one of the fools of Israel. If you do this, the crown prince, you're going to ruin your life. But he won't hear. So she says, as a last ditch effort, she says, Please, speak to the king. Go talk to dad. See what he says. If it's right, he will not withhold me from you. He'll give me to you. It's not right. And David would not do that, but it would have been able, it would give an opportunity for this weirdness to have been stopped right then. But nothing was stopping Amnon. Not the words of his sister, not the truth of the word, his desire. The sin was so great that he, he, he would not stop it. And at this point, he's not going to be able to. So, it says in verse 14, However, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. That's Bible speak for he raped his sister. She fought which is all she was able to do and all she was expected to do according to the law. And he forced her anyway. And then you have verse 15. How's it begin? Then Amnon hated her exceedingly. Wow. We're one verse apart. Probably only a few minutes from one part to the next part. From love to hate. That's how we know it wasn't love in the first place. It was sin and his desire to rule over him. And he hates himself for what he's done. And he transfers that hatred to her. And this kind of stuff still happens today. It still goes on. He hated her exceedingly so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her and Amnon said to her arise be gone get out of here so she said to him no indeed the evil of sending me away is worse than this other that you have done to me but he would not listen to her and this is what she was talking about if you just hold your place here maybe you remember but let's go to Deuteronomy 22 in Deuteronomy chapter 22, as we uh, take a look at the law, the law had uh, um, provided opportunity for what should be taking place in a situation like this. A lot of people mistakenly, they, they hear this verse in the Bible. You ever heard the verse called the Lex Talionis? It's uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And a lot of people, when they look at that, they think, oh, it's so horrible. I mean, if we just live like that, imagine. Well, let me simplify it for you. We live worse than that. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth means that the judgment for the crime should fit the crime. That's all it means. It means if your neighbor did something and took your eye, you can't do worse than take his. If he knocked out your tooth, you can't do worse than take his tooth. What do you, the, the, the Hatfields and the McCoys, we remember this little thing that they had going. Why does it continue? Because one side does worse to the other side. And they do worse. They retaliate. They retaliate. They retaliate. Same thing happens in a war in, in, on terrorism. Isn't the same thing going on with that? Because there's worse retaliation and then that elevates their retaliation and back and forth it goes. And it never stops because we do not apply... Lex Talionis, the law of mercy. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Equal. Not more or less. Well, part of that law, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, beginning at verse 28, lays this out for us. If a man finds a young woman who is a virgin, and she is not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out. Then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father fifty shekels of silver. And she will be his wife, because he has humbled her. And he will never divorce her 
for all his days. It said to the man, if you do this, you will be responsible for her the rest of her life. If you do this to her, the, the whole, what you have to understand in that society is a woman's ability to survive was connected to the man. She couldn't own land. She couldn't have any, she, she didn't have those rights. So, so she would be tied to this man. He would have to be as a husband to her and provide for her forever. Keep that in mind. Every guy who ever talked a woman out of her virginity, according to the Bible, he is responsible for her forever. To take care of her forever. To make sure she has everything she needs. That's what the Bible laid out. So now that, that Amnon had done this thing, it didn't mean that they had to live together as husband and wife. It meant that he had to take the responsibility of a husband over her and take care of her and make sure she, because the chances of her being with anybody else in that culture is, is none. Zero. But he's saying, get out of here. Like she's... Not his sister, she's a thing, she's an item, he doesn't care about her at all. And she says, this is worse than what you've done to me. You're supposed to take care of me now, I mean, what's going to happen to me? Where can I go? She can't go back over to the room with the virgin, she's defiled. Something is different about her that's never going to be the same again. And same for him. So she calls out to him for mercy. Look what he says, verse 17. So he called his servant who attended him and he said, Here, and in your Bibles it says, put this woman out. Is that what your Bible says? Put this woman out? You'll notice the word woman is in italics. That's because that word is not there. Literally what he says in the Hebrew is, put this thing out. That's how much he hates her now. Put this thing out away from me and bolt the door behind her. So the servant physically takes her, throws her out of the room, and bars the door so that she cannot return. In verse 18 it says, Now she had on a robe of many colors. Well, we've heard that phrase before, right? Remember Joseph in, in Genesis? Really, the phrasing, it's kind of tricky in the Hebrew, but, but it, it means that this robe she wore was of special significance. It marked her as one of the royal kids of the king. She's David's daughter. She belongs to him. And this robe of many colors really had, was a long robe, flowing robe, full, big sleeves. I mean, the whole deal. And it, and it spoke of, of all that she had as, as being part of the royal family. For the king's virgin daughters wore this apparel. And his servant put her out and bolted the door. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her. And laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. Oh, I don't want you to miss what happened. When he threw her out, he didn't give her her veil. Well, it's, in the Marine Corps, one time, I, I was sent to Florida. I was stationed in Pensacola, Florida for a while. And when I got there, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I went, you had to travel in your alphas, my alpha uniform. So I got my alpha uniform, my cover, which is what they call the hat that you wear. It's called a cover because it covers your head. And so anyways, I'm hanging out, I'm in a plane, I'm in the airport, and I left my cover somewhere. Well, in the Marine Corps, sorry, pal, but you can't just walk around without a cover on your head. So if you happen to lose your cover, what you're required to do by the Uniform Code of Military Justice is put your hand on your head and walk out like that, signifying... That you are a moron. <laughs> in essence. 
So I had to walk around for a little while until I could figure out where my stupid hat was uh, with my hand on my head. Tamar didn't have her veil anymore. Well, the veil, remember I told you, they're totally covered. The veil and all that was torn off of her when she was raped by her brother. And then he throws her out and all she's got is her robe. She doesn't have her veil to put over her, which is a mark of disgrace. And he throws her outside, so she tears her clothes, which means something humiliating has happened to me. She puts ashes on her head that marks her as someone who has been defiled, and she puts her hand over her face. Because her brother took her veil, and she can't walk around like that. And she went away weeping. She thought the day was going to turn out different than it did. She thought it was a thing of honor. Crown prince turned out to be a day she was never going to forget, right? So she leaves from that place. She leaves from that place and the scripture says, Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Again, that's Bible speak. In the Hebrew, it's much more plain. Your brother, did Amnon sleep with you? Has he taken you? Why did Absalom know that? He could tell by the way she looked. Torn robe, no veil, ashes on her head, crying bitterly. The scripture indicated... In those days, there's no police. Do you guys understand that? In the nation of Israel, there's no police force. There was no police. Family matters like this were handled by the strict observance of what the law said. And they were carried out by a character called the Avenger of Blood. The Avenger of Blood is the Goel. The kinsman redeemer, your nearest of kin. Tamar's nearest of kin is Absalom, who also happens to be, interestingly enough, next in line for the crown. You don't think his wheels are spinning right now? Ooh, Amnon has messed up. Well, according to the law, Amnon's responsibility is to take care of her, make sure all her needs are met, that she's going to be taken care of for her entire life. And the avenger of blood, Absalom, should have made sure that happened. He should have said, Tamar, this is wrong, brought the injustice to their father, had it dealt with, probably would have had the crown stripped from Amnon anyway, probably would have made Absalom the next one in line anyhow, and it would have been done properly in accordance to the word. But Absalom, another one of David's sons, saw his father see what he wanted and do whatever it took to have it. And Absalom, seeing an opportunity for what he wanted, the crown, was willing to do whatever it took to get it. So look what he tells his sister. His sister comes to him. He says to her, But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. Wow. What a kind and considerate brother. The avenger of blood, the one that's supposed to take care of her. Forget about it. He's your brother. If he was somebody else, I'd have took care of it. That's what that phrase means. If he had been just some guy in the street, I'd go get him. But he's your brother. Don't take this matter to heart. Forget about it. Be patient. Stay in my house. So Absalom's going to take care of Tamar there in his house. She remained desolate in her brother Absalom's home. Now, there's going to be very little said about Tamar in the rest of the Bible. This Tamar. That's almost the last phrase about her. She remained desolate in her brother's house. 
Neither one of her brothers cared about her. All they cared about was what they wanted. One brother wanted sex and the other brother wanted power. Didn't make any difference. They still treated her the same way. As though she didn't matter at all. She didn't matter. She wasn't part of their scheme. One brother uses her one way, the other in another way. In verse 21 it says, But when King David heard all these things, he was very angry. And to David's everlasting shame, that's all it says. What do you mean you're angry? Well, go do something. Talk to Ammon. Help Tamar. Do something. He was very angry. The man after God's own heart. The four were too hard on him. This is what stopped him. I just took Bathsheba. Killed her husband. Watched my child die. What right do I have to judge another man's servant? But answer, every right. You're the dad. So man up and do the job. The next time there's a perfect dad on the market, hey, I'll point you guys all out to him. But there's not too many of those. Did anybody have a perfect dad? I don't have a perfect dad. I'm not a perfect dad. But that does not change my responsibility to God to be a father to my children. To raise them up the way they ought to go. And David, because of his shame and his sin, doesn't do anything. Should have done something. But I I understand. I've been there. There have been times I see my kids... I see myself and my kids. You guys never see yourself and your kids, do you? Those of you who have kids. My, uh, my kids, every one of my kids have all struggled with temper. When I was, Joe, temper to the extreme. But when I was little, I remember getting so mad, I couldn't get the dumb, you guys ever take a drawer, open a drawer of your dresser and a drawer comes out? And then you try to put the drawer in, it won't go in. And you're, you know, if you just hold your tongue right, it'll finally go. But it's not going in, and I get mad. Ugh, and I kick the dresser. And I try a little harder. And finally, I threw the drawer and busted it. And before my mom could take me off the dresser, the dresser was in pieces. Firewood. I crushed it. I broke it. That, forget it. If it don't go in, there'll be no dresser. And I killed my dresser. And every once in a while, I go into my kids, Joseph in particular, and something's not working right on the computer, and he slams the lid of the computer down. I don't know how his computer has survived so long. And he throws a laptop across the room, and he jumps up and throws a chair over here. And I know he struggles with autism, and he struggles with learning how to understand how to control it, but when I watch him do it, what I see is me in him. And I am under the command of God to take that out of him. See, God said to me, Jackie, here's your son, Joseph, and this is your responsibility. Raise him. Take the things out that need took out. Put the things in that need put in. And until the Lord takes away that responsibility, that's my responsibility. Now I can start to say in my mind, Oh, you know, I struggle with that. Who am I to tell him that I struggle with that? What do you mean, who am I? His father. That's who I am. That's the only authority I need. I don't need to be perfect. I need to be who God told me to be, his dad. 
And that goes across the board for us all. And whatever responsibility areas we have, whether it's at work, or whether it's in different types of relationships, whatever that may be, we're to fulfill that role. Whatever that role is that God has, we're to do it. If only David had done something. Maybe he saves them all. Maybe he saves them all. Instead of losing them all. Last thing we read about Tamar. She's desolate in Absalom's house. So Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note your servant. I'm sorry, let's go back. Verse 23, I skipped one. Verse 23, And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. He's inviting his father, David. Hey, come on, the king, come over. Sheep shearing was a big deal. That was a huge party in those days. Celebration. And so they'd shear the sheep and there'd be this huge banquet. And Absalom is inviting his dad. Come on, come and be a part of this. And, and all the king's sons. But he's inviting his father because he's pretty sure dad's going to say no. So he plays it out. The king said to Absalom, Oh, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. And when the king comes over to your house, it's a big deal. Even if the king's your dad. And there's a lot of stuff that goes along with it. So David's like, Nah, you know, I don't want to trouble you. I don't want to be a burden to you. So then he urged him, but he would not go. So he blessed him. So Absalom says, Listen, Please let my brother Amnon go with us. Remember I told you the crown prince sometimes would go in the place of his father? Well, that's what Absalom was waiting for. Oh, please let Amnon go. And the king said to him, why? What do you want Amnon to go for? You guys don't hang out. You're not buddies. And besides that, David knows now what's happened, right? Why do you want Amnon? But Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Absalom, he told, ah, oh, come on, dad, it's okay. You know, that's all two years, that's a long time ago. You know, I just want to celebrate with my brothers. I just want to have them all together. And finally, David relents and says, okay. So all of his kids go over to Absalom's place. Now Absalom had commanded his servants saying, watch now. When Amnon's heart is merry with wine... And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. Well, just so you're aware, there is nothing courageous or valiant about killing a drunk. There's no courage or valiance necessary to kill a guy who's wasted. But Absalom's good with those words, and he's going to use those words in the upcoming chapters pretty well. So he tells his servants, hey, don't worry about it. In essence, he's saying, I'm the avenger of blood. But before you fall for the trap that Amnon deserved to die for what he did, that's not what the law said. The law said, if you shed man's blood by man, your blood shall be shed. The law stipulated what should happen in the case. If it had been legal, the story would have stopped and Absalom would not have had to wait for two years. But according to the Lex Talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, Absalom wants to take his head. So he does it in a sneaky way. Hey, come to a party. It's all good. Bygones are bygones. Hey, you know, you're my brother. Whatever lies he told him, he told him. Verse 29, So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom has commanded. And all the king's son arose, and each got on his mule and fled. That's the most hilarious verse in the Bible. What do you mean? Well, not the part where Amnon dies. The part where all the kids of David run to jump on their mule to ride home. 
That's hilarious. What are they doing riding mules? That's like saying, hey, we, we all showed up to this big biker bash, and somebody got killed. And we jumped up and ran out and got on our mopeds and ran home. That's hilarious to me. They are riding mules, a bunch of donkeys going down the road. Not mules like we have mules. They're, they're talking about donkeys. Donkeys known for their speedy getaways. I don't, I don't know. I don't understand it, but that's what happens. The servants all get up and they kill Amnon. And when they kill Amnon, all the brothers, all the other kids, they freak out. And they run out and they jump on their mules. And they, they flee. Couldn't a guy catch a mule? No, not quite. It just doesn't seem like the speediest getaway. They jumped on their stallions and rode away. That's how it should go, isn't it? They jumped on their mules. Anyways, back to the story. <clears throat> and it came to pass, while they were on their way, that news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Do you ever notice how, when something crazy happens, the first news it hits is just not quite right? You know, the first news that David gets is, All your kids are dead. And that must have shook him to the core. All your sons are dead. In fact, the scripture tells us what he did. So the king arose and tore his garments. He tears his royal robe, which requires everybody around him to do the same thing. Look what happened. And all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. So David tears his clothes. They tear theirs, fall down on their knees and, and begin to weep. And then Jonadab, this knucklehead again, then Jonadab, the son of Shimeah, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. How does he know that? The Bible don't tell us. But I'm guessing he had more information than the king did about what was expected to take place at this party. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. He says, so from the day Amnon raped Tamar, Absalom was going to kill him. And this is what happened. Now therefore, let not my lord the king take this thing to his heart, to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Here's what I think. I think it was all part of what Absalom was doing. I think what Absalom's, part of Absalom's plan was this. So get all the, the king's sons to come. I'm going to kill Amnon. And the first report, the first messenger, I want you to run back to David. I want you to tell him I killed everyone. Going to shake him to the core. Going to give me more time to get away. So me and the servants, we're going to go our way. All the king's sons, it'll take a while for the confusion to wear off. And then, then this guy, Jonabab or Zinabab or whatever his name is, he's going to go tell David, they're not all dead, it's Amnon. And, and so it'll, it'll ease some of the anger because at first, you know, he's going to be so afraid because all of his children are, are dead. I think it's all part of, of his plot. Absalom's no stupid guy. He's a plotter. You watch, he's going to take the whole kingdom in a couple chapters. It's all part of the plan that he had. Don't get the idea that he's avenging his sister because he loves her. He'd have done that the first day. That's not what he's doing. He's figuring out how to take the kingdom. That's his goal. And that's what he's about. In verse 34, it says, And Absalom fled, and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming, as your servant said. So it is. Look, there they are. You know, <laughs> a wild herd of mules running down the road. So it was as soon as he had finished speaking that the king's sons indeed came. And they lifted up their voice and wept. 
Listen, also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. And before we think David didn't care about his kids, he did. They're not a father alive. I don't care what he says. Every father can be a knucklehead and a jerk. And I don't care what father has ever spoke what words. When it's quiet and everybody's gone and it's dark, he's eating them. Every dad. Because when they all go away and it's dark, he thinks about all the things he should have said, all the things he should have did, the way he could have done something different because it's easier to think when it's quiet. And he, and he plays back all those things in his head and he deals with all those things that he wishes he could do different. Every dad. In the darkness of regret. Oh, David was no different. He mourned bitterly for his son, the crown prince, the next in line to be king. Partly because he realizes the path that they're on, he chose in the springtime when the kings go to war and he stayed home and it led him down the path that he finds himself on currently verse 37 says but Absalom fled and went to Talmai remember Talmai? the king of Jeshur, right? that's grandpa the son of Aminachad, the king of Jeshur, and David mourned for his son what's it say? every day Oh, it's not necessarily talking about Absalom there. And part of what we see in the original language as we look at this scripture is there was a hunger in David's heart for justice from Absalom. Not for peace, for justice. Absalom, you've done wrong. I'm the king. You have to pay. Lex Talionis, right? Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. If you shed blood by you, man's blood should be shed. First rule of government that God ever gave. Oh, but David's got a problem, didn't he? God gave him forgiveness, grace, mercy. So David in his heart has a desire to give his son Absalom grace and mercy. But there's something else that David did. David repented which paved the way for grace and mercy and Absalom is unrepentant Absalom is hiding out Absalom knows what he did and he knows his plan so Absalom fled and went to Jashir and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom. That phrase, long to go. He wants to reach out and snatch up his son. This is not, I long to go, give him a hug and tell him everything's okay. You'll understand that a little more when we get into chapter 15. And the story of chapter 15 is all about Joab getting David to let Absalom come home. David does, is not looking for Absalom to come home. He wants to see repentance in his son's life. He wants to see that same thing that we saw in the heart of David, right? The man after God's own heart that says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. I've done something wrong. Forgive me. But that's not in the heart of Absalom. King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. Three years, David waited. David, I think any of us, you know, I try not to get too much on David as a father because we, all of us who have had the job failed at some 
point or another. But David needs a face-to-face. He needs to talk to his son. He needs to give that opportunity, not just ignore him. Not just want to throttle them. If you're a father, there have been times where your children have done things and all you can think of is, I just want to get my hands around his neck. <laughs> That's not it. That's not it. I want to be, I want to give the same opportunity that Nathan gave David. I want to provide opportunity for repentance. And repentance can't happen if I don't pick up the phone, if I won't talk. If I don't write letters, if I won't answer emails, if I just shun them. That's the road David took. He shunned Absalom. Amnon's gone. He can't save Amnon now. Tamar's life is is upside down. We don't ever know what happens to Tamar now. Absalom has an opportunity for repentance and renewal and to be brought back into the fold of the family for God to extend the same forgiveness and grace which can change your life dramatically. But David won't talk to him. David won't reach out. Every once in a while, my wife and I have arguments. I'm sure none of you in here do that. But... We have arguments, and occasionally the argument will go to the point where one of us will say, why am I always the one who has to say I'm sorry? Well, let me clarify that. You're always wrong. Yeah, most of the time. I did kind of walk into that one. No, the idea being... (laughs) Kathy's got a pipe in from her back. But the idea is is this. The idea is you who are spiritual, you who are more mature, you who are have a better grasp on the spirit for that moment. Fulfill what God wants you to do and be a peacemaker. Cuz God said, in as much as it is possible for you, you be at peace. With all people. And all in the Greek means all. And that's all that all means. So there's no getting around. Oh, does that mean this person? Uh, Yeah, they fit in all. Does that mean that person? Oh, yep. That's all. When we have that place, we have that. Now, sometimes we're not, we don't have that spiritual foundation under us. We're, we're allowing sin to rule and we're doing dumb things and we're making mistakes. But there's got to be someone, a friend, a family member, somebody around you who can encourage you to say, stop. Sin is at the door and its desire is to rule over you. But you should rule over it. Make peace. Make it right. There's never, it's never okay. People, you, you got to get free. I was sharing with somebody the other day, well, does that mean if I sold the car to somebody and they never paid me, I got to sell another car to them? No, that would be stupid. <laughs> but you don't get to hold on to the bitterness. You have to let it go. And if you get it back, you get it back. And if you don't, you don't. But you got to let it go. you got to make it right. David could have won Absalom's life by giving him grace. And if you don't think that's true, then you need to come talk to me later and hear my story. Because apart from the grace of my wife to me, I would not be who I am today, nor would I be here. Maybe I wouldn't even be alive. Grace changes everything, but it has to come from someone who's willing to extend it. And that requires me to be there, not to be running away, not to be hiding from my responsibility or those opportunities. If those kind of things are going on in your life, just pray. See how God would lead you to make those things okay. 
If they're going on in somebody else's life, pray how God might use you to encourage them. Make peace. Don't leave Absalom on the back burner too long. Because when he sits there, he stews. And when he stews, it starts a rebellion. And when the rebellion happens, you lose him. And that's what happens to David in the next couple chapters. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the truth of your word, God, for what your word is laying out for us tonight. Lord, I pray that we would just take to heart the, the story, the, the, the failures and the successes of David. Still a man after God's own heart. He still loves you more than he loves anything else. But as we all know, the distance from knowing what I should do to doing it sometimes is too far. So Lord, I pray for those of us in here for whom you have laid on our heart this person, that person, this thing, this, this, this Absalom, done us wrong, committed murder, whatever it is. We gotta make it we gotta make it right. We gotta provide opportunity for repentance. We gotta give opportunity for life and grace to flow. And an attitude of forgiveness that comes through a heart of repentance. Lord, I just pray you'd facilitate it. You'd open the doors. And we would be willing to walk through those doors. Lord, I pray that you would allow your word to be living and powerful. And find fruitful place in our hearts and lives. And that by obedience to your word, we are speaking your love language. We are saying to you, I love you. Not with the words of our mouth, which is important as well. But with the deeds in our heart. God, I pray that you would be glorified and magnified in this place. As we seek to honor you in all we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.